as I um, pray the word of God over us. This is the word of the Lord. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope and the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, Lord, I thank you that our hope does have a name and that his name is Jesus. I thank you that because you have planned your story and are fulfilling it in perfection, we have hope. I thank you that because you were willing to come and live among us, we have hope. I thank you that because you died a death you did not deserve on our part, we have hope. I thank you that because you beat death and cheated death and overcame sin and rose again, we have hope. I thank you that because you have ascended on high and are seated at the right hand of the Father, we have hope. I thank you that because you have sent your spirit to indwell us, we have hope. I thank you that because you have promised that you will come again to get us, we have hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. And it's for the fame and the glory of his name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Check one. There we go. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God has promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, the older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures said, say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? Romans 9, 8 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mrs. Peters. Can I have a kiss? <laughs> By the way, that's my daughter, if you didn't know. So <laughs> I don't kiss everybody that comes up here and reads the word. Please be seated. <laughs> but I'll kiss you, Sean, if you want. <laughs> um, it's still weird to call her Mrs. Peters, actually, but, but it's a good weird. I like it. I like it. Um, 
New Testament Greek scholar, Kent Hughes, I've mentioned him before, um, he is well respected. He says this, speaking specifically of the passage that my daughter just read, which, oh, by the way, there's a lot to it, obviously. He says this, God is beyond us. If anyone completely understands the ways, um, his ways, the Trinity has to make room for another member. And he was specifically talking about Romans chapter 9. We are entering into this, um, or we're back in, I should say, this part of Romans that we're calling the mystery of righteousness. So, so the title of the series is Righteousness Revealed in the Gospel of Romans. And starting back in chapter 8, we started talking about this idea of the mystery of God's righteousness. That there are things about God that are crystal clear. There are things about our salvation. There are things about the gospel that are crystal clear. And we will keep talking about those. And then there are things that are frankly just beyond us. But we don't want to push away from those things. We want to lean into those. And my prayer, and our prayer, honestly, for, this, for us this whole week has been that what we would leave here today and next week, and as we continue on in chapter 10 and the mystery there, and chapter 11, the mystery there, that, that each of these weeks, we would just walk away from these moments going, our God is an awesome God. Like he, because there are things about him we cannot understand, that, that reveals to us his awesomeness. Like I, we use the word awesome way too much. I, I, um, I resolved a couple years ago to, to try very hard to not use that, that word awesome unless I'm speaking about God. And I would challenge you to do that as well. Like your, um, your fish tacos are not awesome. They might be amazing, but they're not awesome. Right? So, like, God is awesome, and we have an awe problem is, is probably our biggest problem. So, what's being taught here in Romans 8, the middle of Romans 8, which we, which we were doing back in November, October and November of last year, and all the way through Romans 11 are some of the hardest things for us to get our minds around. Right, And so um, before I even get into the passage today, I want to remind us of a few things. And I want to give you some images in your brain that I want you to hold on to, not just today, but throughout the coming weeks as we go through the, um, this part of Romans, Lord willing. So remember, all of what we're talking about, we, we have to remember this. Isaiah 55 says it very clearly. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord nor are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, well, if you know how big the universe is, the heavens are pretty high above the earth. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. The way I think about things is that much different than how you think about things. And so the images I want you to, to, to cling, one of the images I want you to hold on to, and I've used this analogy before, is this idea of a dog and a trainer. Right? Like if, if, if a dog is being trained by a trainer, the trainer does not tell the dog why he's training them. In other words, in other words if this is a dog being used for military use, the, the, the trainer does not tell the, the dog the backstory about the political conflict that is going on in the world so that the dog knows why it's on the mission. Because Why doesn't the trainer do that? Because the dog doesn't have the ability to comprehend that. One of the other things that the trainer tries to do is, go back to that other one, Catherine, sorry, is he tries to build trust with the dog. So he's saying, even as I'm telling you to do things that you may not understand the whole backstory to, I want you to know that you can trust me. So that when I tell you to jump out of an airplane, you'll do it and trust me to do it. 
But this third one is the image I really want you to have. Because, guys, this is, sorry, this is, like, this is us. Now, I don't know if you can tell or not, but that dog is blindfolded, walking on stilts. And he's listening to the voice of his trainer give him commands that he can understand. In just the way that he can understand them. No backstory, no explanation about why in the world am I out here with a blindfold on, walking on stilts, because the dog doesn't need to know it, and the dog couldn't understand it. So the trainer is using terminology that he can understand. Now you take the, now, now keep that picture up there for a minute. You take that image, and you compare, and you talk about Isaiah 55. As my ways are higher than your ways, um, your thought, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Guys, I, I say it, I, I don't think we believe it. Look at that picture. Don't look at me. Look at the picture. You're the dog. If you haven't figured that out, you're the dog. God's the trainer. But here's the reality. Really, practically, biologically, intellectually, in every other Lee I can think of, we have more in common with the dog than the trainer has with God. Think about that for a minute. You are closer in being to that four-footed furry animal, then the one made in God's image is to God. That's our problem. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Our problem is, is when we don't understand all, or maybe it was last week, when I talked about how in Romans he talks about all have fallen short of the glory of God, we, we immediately start comparing our little like nuances of good and bad here. And if we would just back up and go, God's glory is so overwhelming. That, that these little differences in who's better and who's worse makes no difference, right? That, when, we're, when we start talking about these two truths that, that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are going to press us into, that God is completely sovereign over everything that ever happens, and human beings are completely responsible for all that we decide and do, when we, start, when we start looking at those, at those two things, and, and in our dog brain, we go, they can't both be true. But what we have to say is, could they be true and we just might not understand them? We might not even have the ability to understand them. In fact, we might not even have the ability to ask the right question about how to understand them because we are so much less than God. So this is the other image that I want you to hold on to. Guys, there are two truths that are found throughout Scripture from beginning to end. One is that God is sovereign over all things. There is not, and, we, and we hear phrases like this when we say, praise Jesus. There is not a molecule anywhere in the universe ever at any time by which Jesus Christ does not say mine. And we, say, we hear something like that and we go, preach it, brother. But then we go, but he would never impose his will on a person. Wait a minute, you can't have both. You can't have both. You can't say Jesus is in charge of every molecule in the universe and he would never impose his will on a human being. At the same time, every human being that has ever lived is completely responsible for the choice that they make about God. How do those two things work? I don't know, and neither do you. But what we don't want to do is develop 
doctrines or ideas that somehow make us feel better about, the, about which of those two lines we lean into, right? And we also don't want to go, well, I, the, the, we don't want to lower God down to our standard and make him a dog by saying, well, I have to invent something that makes it understandable, so guys, please don't send me verses or tell, talk to me about verses about how, well, but look here where it talks about how obviously there's a choice here for us to make. I know. It's not just that I know. I'm not saying I know all those verses and I, and I can give you an argument against them. I'm saying I know all those verses and I believe them. So does, so does your church. Absolutely, we have a choice to make. But also, don't send me the verses if you're over in the, in the staunch, like, like, God is completely sovereign. Don't send me all the verses that say things like, but can't you see that nobody can resist his will? So how can you say that God has... I, I know all those verses. I believe them. What I don't know, what your church does not know, what, frankly, nobody in the universe knows, is how those two things actually work. But they're both true. Guys, here's what's ironic to me. And, and I want you to just step back for a second. And, and, and my introduction is long on purpose today because it's really an introduction for the next few weeks. The Trinity. Let's, let's step away from the sovereignty of God for a minute because this is the one that freaks everybody out. Has for years in church history. Let's step away from it. Let's talk about the Trinity. Explain it to me. Now, there's, there are parts of the Trinity we can understand. Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? Three in one. Of the same essence but having different function. Like we, but there will come a point when you talk about the Trinity where you're going to get to a place and you're going to go, eh? How about, this, how about this joyous one that we all celebrate every Christmas? The kenosis. The kenosis is just the theological term for, God, for Jesus emptying himself, using air quotes, emptying himself of some of his deity to become man. And yet we absolutely believe, or have to believe as a Bible-believing Christian, as someone who believes his the cross is sufficient. We believe that God, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now there are parts of that doctrine that we can clearly explain, and we're going to get to a point. If you and I'm telling you, in my classes and in my theology classes, we, we, I mean, guys that are way more brilliant than me that we had to read or hear lectures on, um, would get you get to a point and you go, there's a point in every one of these places where you go, eh, how does that work? I don't know. The problem is, we get to something like the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, and we are so uncomfortable with going, eh, I don't know. Why would that be? Could it be? Because it's the one that presses us back against us wanting to be God more than any other doctrine. You can believe in the Trinity or, and, and, and not understand it, and it doesn't press you into anything about Who's really in charge of your life? You can believe that God was fully man, or Jesus was fully man and fully God, but it doesn't really like grade at your, at your arrogance and pride, and by your I mean my, right, like this doctrine does. Guys, there, there is a real reason that we have to recognize about why this presses against us so much. 
So as we were looking months ago at Romans 8, when he talks about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and how in Romans 8, 28, when he says there's, um, that he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and how he says that um, in Romans 8, 31, where he says, um, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we, and we love those promises, and we cling to those promises. We, those promises can only be true if Romans 8, 29, and 30 are true. That those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. I I preached on that. It was months ago. Go back and listen to it. Guys, how do those, the only way he can work all things together for good and nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8, 39, the only way those two things can be true is if he is in control of all things. Right? How does that work? I don't know. Right? I, I don't really know, and neither does anybody else. A couple more things about this. Just so, just so we are, well, let me, let, me, let me mention one other place in Romans. Even as we talk about how God is in control of all things, Romans 8, 29, and 30, the golden chamber of redemption. Guys, we want to we lean into that, and at the same time, we don't want to forget Romans 4. Because Paul took a whole chapter of Romans 4 talking about Abraham. And how Abraham believed in the promise. How was Abraham credited his righteousness? Faith, belief. Three different times in that chapter, Paul makes the point of saying, it was Abraham who believed God. He wasn't made to believe God. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So we have to hold on to this. His responsibility was to believe God. And at the same time, Romans 8 says, and, it's, and God is going to work his plan out for Abraham and for you and for me perfectly. We have to hold on. This is the great theological argument that Paul has been leading us into this entire time. Because it's always been a part of the church. I love how, on one of my favorite stories, because this is what, this doctrine, this idea of the sovereignty of God, um, the, the responsibility of man, Calvinism, Arminianism, free will, whatever whatever. um, labels you want to put on it, and I don't like any of them, because it has been one of the big dividing things in little churches, like churches implode over this, and they shouldn't. Think back to the Trinity and kenosis, like why is this any different? And like throughout the globe, churches have argued about this issue. But one one of my favorite stories about, guys, we can't all get along. By meaning, meaning there is great freedom. I, everybody hear this. One, two, three, eyes on me. Every, there is great freedom here and grace here to wrestle through the I don't knows here. Like nobody, I, I, I say it every time because I, almost every time we preach on this, and this is at least the fourth time, I don't mean in the series, I mean in the history of our church, we've preached on the sovereignty of God, and every time people will come up to me and go, you're telling me I have to be a Calvinist in order to be at this church. And I'm like, first of all, I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist. So how would you, why would I say you have to be one? Second of all, Calvin didn't corner the market on the gospel. Right? Like, I, I, it just, but, it, but, but what happens is, I mean, one, the enemy's really good at getting people to hear what he wants them to hear. And two, we just, we rail against what was in our past. But if we go back far enough, like, guys, this, this doctrine of this, this tension has always been in the church, always from the very beginning. 
But one of my favorite stories isn't a very beginning story, but it was during the Great Awakening. So there's a man named George Whitfield. He was, a, he was, one, of the, he was one of the men used by God um, to bring um, the, the, the revival of the Great Awakening to Europe and to America. And so were um, John and Charles Wesley. Right? They were both my, massively used. And here's the cool part about their story. Both of them preached together. And need, they did not agree on this issue. John Wesley was, was very like staunchly man's responsibility. George Whitfield was very staunchly God's sovereignty. Now, what was interesting is if you, if you heard either of them preach or you read any of their sermons, you wouldn't necessarily know that because George Whitfield was all about getting people emotional and getting them um, excited about what God was, like how they were feeling about God. And, and thou, literally thousands were saved through his ministry. And John Wesley was the, was the founder of the Methodists, meaning I want to be very ordered and structured. So but here's the cool part about the story. They would travel together. They would argue together. They would debate this very theology together. And they would go out and they would preach together and they would hug each other and they would love each other. And, they would, and guys, if these, if these men that were used mightily by God that probably knew way more about God than, than our collective wisdom would, would say, right? If they can do that, why can't we? Why can't the church? In fact, George Whitfield died before John Wesley did. And when some reporters who knew that John Wesley and George Whitfield did not agree on this issue, when they came to John Whitfield, um, to John Wesley, and they said, hey, do you think you'll see George in heaven? John's answer was no. And they're all like, oh, okay, we got the dirt now. He's going to say he's been preaching a false gospel. And he says, no, because I believe that his place at the throne will be so near the throne of God that I will not be able to see him from how back, far back I am. That was his way of honoring the ministry of a guy that he didn't fully agree with, but absolutely knew the man loved Jesus and was preaching the gospel just like he was, because this is not a gospel issue. However, the more we know about it, the better off we are. So last thing I'll say, and we'll kind of wrap up this, this long introduction. I wrote this down because I wanted to be precise about this, so I'm just going to read it. It says, we should note that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is nothing new. Abraham was a product of it. King David lived it. The prophets proclaimed it. Jesus taught it. The apostle Paul wrote it. Augustine clung to it. It was the view of the biblicists Tyndale and Wycliffe, of the hymn writers Isaac Watts and John Newton, of the evangelist George Whitfield, of the revivalist theologian Jonathan Edwards, of the founder of the modern missions of modern missions, William Carey. It was held by the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Huss, and Knox. It was abundantly expressed by most of the Puritans. It was proclaimed by the great preachers such as Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, believed by many modern pastors such as J.I. Packer, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and John Piper, even younger, more popular pastors such as David Platt, Matt Chandler, and Francis Chan hold to the divine sovereignty. It has always been a basic element of Christian theology from the very beginning. We don't want to unhinge ourselves from our history, right? At the same time, men like C.S. Lewis, he, when you read C.S. Lewis, I, I talk about him a lot, massively used by God to bring me to Jesus. Talks about free will, very Arminian in his theology. I love the man. 
Men, well, probably the, the, the best Bible commentator I know, because he speaks a language I can understand, Warren Wearsby, 90-something years old, definitely leans heavy on the man's responsibility. I love the man. Has probably done more for, for, for my Bible knowledge than any other person that I haven't personally interacted with. Men like Charles Swindoll don't hold staunchly to the sovereignty of God. But these are good men who preach the word really well. And we can listen and learn a ton from them. It, we want to like, be able to filter all things through the word of God and take what is true. So last thing is um, John Stott. He was a 20th century uh, preacher. He said that, that most of our disagreements are, or problems arise because we, are all, we all have a distorted view of God. We all have a distorted view of God. So ultimately, it all comes back to that Isaiah 55. Oh, you know, how, my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We just don't really believe that. That was a really long-winded introduction because, guys, I wish I could sit down with each of you one-on-one and have a conversation with you over time on this journey of how do we wrestle through these two truths and and fit them together in our brains. I just don't have that kind of ability, and neither do you. So we're going to together just work through this journey over the coming weeks together, and we're going to give each other grace, and we're going to say, you know what, guys, this is not a dividing thing. It doesn't have to be unless you let it be. Right? Nobody here is saying that, 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 that God is completely sovereign, and unless you believe that he, he, he has absolved us of choice, you're not really a Christian. Nobody here even thinks that. You can't think that and be a, and be a Bible-believing Christian. And nobody here is going, and yet we're all just running around doing our own thing, and God is hoping it all turns out okay. Right? Nobody here believes that either, because you can't believe that and be a Bible-believing Christian. So look at your first talking points question. Then we'll actually get into the points of the message. And they, and they will go fairly fast today because we will pick it up tomorrow or um, next week. I wish it were tomorrow. Then it wouldn't be, so, it wouldn't be hanging so long because I am going to leave you like in a cliffhanger. So here's, here's the first talking points question. It's in your bulletin. Um, it's in your bulletin insert. It says, um, the willingness to lean into and learn about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that is that he is in control, comes only when we humble ourselves and trust him. So how can we increase our humility, and how can we increase our trust in him? So I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes, not out loud, with the people you're sitting next to, as it relates to your relationship with God. So I don't mean your humility towards other people. I mean, as it relates to your view of God, how can you increase your humility, and, and what helps you increase your trust? Go.
Sorry, that was my fault. Um, Men treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy, but in Scripture, it's a matter of worship. Right? That it's really about how we worship the Lord. And then R.C. Sproul says this, and this, this, this more connects to today's message and next week's message, and then we'll look more at the man's responsibility part when we get to Romans 10, because that's the way Paul breaks it down. He's going to make this argument in Romans 9 of God is in control of all things, and then in Romans 10 he's going to go, but man, you've got some serious responsibility to cry out to God, and we'll touch on that, Lord willing, at the end. And then in Romans 11 he's going to bring the whole mess together. Right? And so, um, in, 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 as it relates to Romans 9, R.C. Sproul says this, To say that God's sovereignty is limited by man's freedom is to make man sovereign. And, and we need to not just dismiss that, but we need to stop and go, that really is at the heart of our struggle in the column of, man, of God's sovereignty. Our struggle with that column is that we want to somehow get God out of control we would probably not even consciously ever, we would never say it out loud, but we certainly wouldn't even, probably don't even let our heart of hearts think it because ultimately we want to be in control, right? And, and that's, um, that is not what the sovereignty of God teaches. Again, even as we certainly have choice. So what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the mystery of the calling of God. And I've got three points, actually four, because um, there's a bonus point that'll come at the end. I mean, we are going to go through them quickly because we'll pick it back up and finish the argument in the rest of Romans 9. But the thought we're looking at today is, what is the main thing about God's promise of salvation? So if we had to, if we had to say, like, this is the thing, or this is what's so important about God's promise of salvation, without getting so caught up in the mystery we can't even understand... Like, what parts of God's promise of salvation can we understand? And we're going to see that it's an effectual promise, that it's a just promise, and that it's a righteous promise. So pick it up. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 of Romans chapter 9. So look at Romans chapter 9, verse 8, and it says, and we're going to see what's one of the one, a main thing about the promise is that it is effectual. That means it produces the result by which it was intended. If something was effectual, it just means it was effective, right? So look at verse 8. It says, this means that, that it is not hidden, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So this is the issue that Paul's trying to address. He's, he's brought this whole thing forward from Romans 1, really, and he's saying this has always ever been about God working the fulfillment of his promise out. And then he's going to tell us how that happens. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. He's, he's going all the way back to Genesis 18, where God promised Abraham that he was going to have a son through which the seed promise of Genesis 3 was going to be fulfilled. Well, if you know the story, in the meantime, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who, had, did not, who could not have a child, says, why don't you go sleep with my servant, Hagar, and they have Ishmael. And there's this whole wrestle in Genesis, we don't have time to talk about today, um, but there's this whole wrestle in Genesis about how Abraham is telling God, hey God, can't Ishmael be my offspring? Well, at some level, it's understandable, because God made the promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old, he goes in to be with Ishmael, or to be with um, Hagar when he's 86. So he waited 11 years. And God hasn't fulfilled his promise. So what we do is we take matters into our hands. Abraham chose his way, absolutely, and we now have the Middle East conflict. That's a whole different discussion for a different day. But, but that's really where Paul... Now, now, as if to double down on the point 
of the seed promise. And we don't have time. If you're in Old Testament history, or survey last semester from the training center, this all makes great sense to you. But look at what he says. He says in, in verse 10, and not only so, not only was there this whole Abraham and Sarah issue, but when Rebecca, Rebecca was Isaac's wife, Isaac was Abraham's son, so next generation, when Rebecca conceived of children uh, by one man, the father Isaac, so he was the son of the promise. He's in Genesis, he's talking about Genesis 25 now, so we've gone ahead there. Though they were not yet born, they had done nothing good. Now, guys, get this. Though they had done, not been born and had done nothing good or bad, it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. This is Paul's way of saying, so that God can show it's his decision who the seed comes from. It's his decision on who gets the blessing and who doesn't. It's not, a, it's not Jacob and Esau, as he says, because then he goes on to say, it was told the older would serve the younger. Guys, right there, and again, we don't have time for this. Um, I, I've taught on this before. But in their culture, when, when Jacob gets the blessing, like that would have been so, that was massively countercultural. Like that, that would have just messed up Isaac. In fact, it did mess up um, Jacob. No, or um, no, Joseph. When when he, when Jacob goes to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, and he crosses his hands, like Joseph years later, he's like, "No, Dad, you can't do that." And he's like, "No, I got it. I got it covered, son." Right? So 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 like Paul is like pushing this point of going, it made no earthly sense, but because God, which is kind of what God does sometimes, but because God wanted to show that He's the one in charge, it He says, um, He says, um. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Guys, guys Paul's point is, is to point out that it is always, the promise has always been through God's sovereign selection. And, and if you know anything about Old Testament history, that you can't read your Old Testament and not see that. It is, it is always God rising up, God raising up, God bringing down, telling his story, pushing it forward. There's this whole thing. Well, part of what we're uncomfortable with is this idea of Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. I won't belabor the point, but, but know that like, he's talking comparatively speaking. It's the same sort of verbiage that Jesus uses when he says, unless you hate your father and mother and love me, what, he really, what does he really mean? We know he doesn't mean hate your parents, because later he talks about that, and he even challenges the Pharisees on that, but he says, unless you love me more than them. This is, this is God's way of saying, I, I chose, I showed favor on Jacob and not Esau. But guys, part of our struggle with this whole idea of, so let's take it away from Jacob and Esau for a second, and just like, what's, why, why do we struggle with this so much? Because we somehow still live in a merit system with God. We do. We all live in a merit system. Guys, understand something. Out of the two of them, Jacob and Esau, they were both rebels, and Jacob was worse. If you know your Old Testament, Jacob is one of the most like scoundrel, conniving, lying people you'll ever meet in your life. None of you would be friends with Jacob. None of you. And he's one of the fathers of our faith. Now, that, that has got to be the sovereignty of God because it's crazy, humanly speaking. Guys, get this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them would be allowed to be elders in your church. No, I'm not kidding. We would not, am I wrong? We would not accept any of those three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as elders, I mean, just, just based on 
the Old Testament account without knowing, you know, if they're repentant and etc. I'm just saying, like, we would go, actually, you're disqualified. They are the founders of our faith. God does what God wants to do. So look at your second talking points question. That's not fair is a common refrain we hear from our little ones. In fact, sometimes we hear it, we, if, we, if we're honest, we hear it in our head all the time about our own lives. But fairness is usually self-defined. It's what we want. It's what we think. Because I still remember when my junior high counselor, I remember going to him, and I'm like, but that's, and I was just this cocky, arrogant, atheist pig, uh, you know, just pugnacious argument. All the time. And I looked at him, and I'm like, that's not fair. And he looked at me. I remember this to this day. I can't even remember the man's name. He was my basketball coach, too, you think I, for, for a couple years. But he looked at me, and he goes, hey, Doug. Who in the world ever told you life was fair? I'm like, oh, <sighs> okay. That's not fair. But, but we have to wrestle and go, guys, it, this idea of God's sovereign selection, those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, like it doesn't feel fair. But we got to go back up to that. To, if we know God is just, we trust him to be loving we know that somehow it all works out in complete fairness. It has to. So, um, so uh, sorry, so I'm going to keep going. If God, if God were fair, what would that look like for all humanity? Just real quick. If God were fair, what would it look like since we're all rebels? Wiped out. Wiped out. God, guys, get this real clear. We, we sit here and we are, we're like, yeah, but, but why, why would God have saved Jacob but, but not favored Esau? Why would God save, not save everybody? Guys, we all deserve hell. It, God is not obligated to save anybody. So instead of going, why not this person? I mean, I get it when they're the people that you love. I pray that all the time for my unsafe friends and family. Absolutely, God, save them. God, save them. We all pray that way. We pray that way as a church. But at the same time to go, but, but God, if you don't save them, that's not fair. We wouldn't say that. Because we know that's just not biblically accurate. So what does our struggle with fairness of God's promise, tell us about our relationship with God. Because I'm over time, I'll just tell you, I'll just give you the answer. Here's what, here's what our struggle with fairness tells us about our relationship with God. We don't trust him. We don't really believe he knows better than we do. We don't really believe that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't really believe that if we just would get out of his way, he would do a mighty work. Right? We feel like we are obligated to inject ourselves into his moment. And that's just not who our God is, right? We don't trust him because we don't know his heart. Guys, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, Spurgeon, believe in this hardcore, believe in the sovereignty of God. He said, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. When you don't know what God's doing in your life or the life of someone you love who's rebelling against God, or you just have to fall back into the heart of God and say, you know what, John 3.16 is still true. For God so loved the world. 2 Peter 3.9 is still true. That God is not slow, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's a choice thing, guys. How about this little gem, Old Testament? Ezekiel 33. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn, that the wicked would turn, that the wicked, that everybody's wicked, that we would turn from our ways towards him, and live. That's a choice, right? We are called over and over again to choose. God doesn't crank us around and go, you're gonna. He can, but he won't, sometimes. Let's go to our second point. 
And this one goes fairly quickly, I hope. So, the promise is an effectual promise. It's also a just promise. So look at verse 14. Because I love how Paul, because my guess is, as Paul is being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Romans, he's wrestling with this issue too. Because his brain isn't smart enough to understand it. He gets to the end of Romans 11, this whole mystery section, and he's like, I don't get it. We'll get there in a minute. But he says, he says so look at Romans 9, verse 14. He says, so what will you say? So in other words, he says, so now you're going to ask me this question. You're going you're to say this then. There, is there any injustice with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's quoting Exodus 33. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, so then he, and then as, again, as if to double down and prove the point, he's like, so let me point out Pharaoh, and we're going to come back to Pharaoh next week, Lord willing. He says, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power through you, and that my name might be proclaimed upon the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And guys, there is no getting around the fact that that is a hard truth to get our minds around. It's why a lot of pastors that preach through Romans skip chapter 9. Those two verses right there, verse 16 and verse 19, or verse 18, because it's, it's hard. But what do you do? Do you just skip it? Do you just go, man, that's just a hard thing. That is a hard truth. Or do you preach it? You just preach it and go, eh, I don't know. I don't get it. But guys, this, just since, we're, since it's close, turn to John, keep your finger in Romans, turn to John 1. Look at how John starts his gospel. You know, it was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so he's talking about Jesus, right? But, but then look at verse 10 of John, of John chapter 3, or John chapter 1. Look at verse 10. The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 10. So he's talking about Jesus. He's entering the world. He says, he was in the world and the world was made through him so that him is Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all, and guys, right there, there's, there's a lot of choice there. His own people chose not to receive him. That's on them. Right? That's, that, is that, that is that man's responsibility column, big time. And then look what he says. But then he says, but to all who did receive him, there's that choice. Those who did believe in his name, there's that choice. He gave them the right, just like, I, just like Abraham. How did Abraham become righteous? By believing. He gave them the right to become children of God. But now look at verse 13. So all of that is like man's responsibility. Now look at verse 13. But they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of... So who causes them to be born again? God. Even as they choose to receive, God is the one that caused it. Guys, in John 3.16, John 3.16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life because God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. How does that chapter start? No, chapter 3. How does that chapter start? Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit, born again. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? The Holy Spirit's like the wind. He goes where he wants, and he leaves when he wants. And who can know what the heck he's doing? That's my paraphrase, obviously. But guys, do you get it? He's saying God loved the world, and he, wants to, he, he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And yet the Holy Spirit is the one that makes people born again, and he does what he wants to do. 
That's the crazy mystery. Look at your, your last talking points question. Because this is it, guys. This is the main thing about God's saving grace. This is the main thing about, your, about the salvation promise. Who moves first? You or God? Who seals the deal? You or God? Guys, if you'll just, guys, again, eh, right? Every time I go, eh, think of that, that, that God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, this cloud, the mystery, someday, maybe, I, I'm not even sure in heaven we'll have the mental acuity to understand it all, but we won't care. We'll be like, oh, okay, cool. But right now, we're like in the, eh, we're looking up at the, we're looking up going, this doesn't make any sense, eh, right? It just doesn't. It just, so it's the way it is. But guys, Understand, if, if we can just get these two things, if we can understand these two things, this is the main thing about salvation. This is how we need to preach it. This is how we need to rest in it. This is how we find our hope in it. This is how when, when you have somebody who you love desperately and they're just rejecting the gospel, you have to fall back into the hands of God in this. God moves first and God seals the deal. Guys, how do we know that? And play, play, think about this. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, God gave me this verse this morning as I was, as I was finishing up my prep for this message. Hebrews chapter 12. He says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Okay, who are the cloud of witnesses? Well, that was chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about all these giants of the faith who did, who chose well, who did things. So, so after a whole chapter on Abraham did, Isaac did, Moses did, I mean, like, like the, by faith, by faith, by faith, they did. He gets to chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews gets to chapter 12, and he says, because of all this God, our man's responsibility being so greatly fulfilled, what do we do? We lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, and we run with endurance this race that is set before us. Now, what does he say in verse 2 of chapter 12? How do we do that? How, how do we then go back and live like the chapter 11 dudes and, and ladies, because he lists ladies there too? How do, how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then how does he describe Jesus? He, Jesus is the author, that's the initiate, the word, the word in Greek actually means the initiator. He is the initiator and the perfecter, it means finisher. So he's saying, here's how you fulfill your responsibility. You fix your eyes on Christ, who is the one who started your salvation, and he is the one who will finish it. Right? That's the answer. That brings us to our last point. And it goes fast because there's only a couple of verses. It says, so, so we're asking the question, what is the main thing about, ourself, about, about God's promise of salvation? It's effectual, it's just, and it's righteous. And remember, this whole theme of this study is the righteousness, of, um, righteousness revealed in the Gospel of Romans. Righteousness is the same word as justice. To be made right, it's fairness, th- th- like in all, in all those things. Think about that. And he says in verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, so again, he's preempting the argument. He's saying, so here's what you're going to say. If verse 18 is true, he hardens who he hardens, he shows mercy on who he shows mercy, you're going to say this to me. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who, now guys, this, this is what I want you to take away from today's message as, we, as we get, we're going to get ready to respond in communion and, and in song here in a minute. But what I want you to take away from this message is, guys, just rest in verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Should the thing molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Because if we would just, if we will just keep the proper perspective, keep God first, there's a whole lot of mystery after that.
right? There just is. There's a, but, but don't, don't interject. This is what our hearts all want to do. We all want to interject ourselves as first. We all want to, we want to be our own God. It has been, the, literally it has been the problem since Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the hook Satan got them with. You can be like God. That's what he's saying. Like if, if you're sitting here today and you're, and you're going, there is no way a God in heaven would interject, would, would, would insert his will upon humanity. And we're going to look at lots of examples of how he's done that next week in Scripture. Um, if you're sitting here today going, there's no way God would interject his will into humanity, I, I just, this, is what you're, this is what your heart is saying. I want to be like God. Because that's what we all want. Because if we're just honest, we do. I mean, we say, oh, I don't want to be like God. I just messed up my life. I get it. But you know what? When that moment comes and that decision comes, or that face before he's there, or whatever it is, like you're like, yeah, but I really want to be like God. I really, but guys, here's the last thing I, I want to share with you before we um, go into our time of communion. What is the most important promise? One, put God first, but that's only half the story. Yes, it is an effectual promise. It is a just promise and it is a righteous promise. But guys, that's only half the story. So, so I'm going to ask, um, let's see, Evan and Parker, um, and who else is, come up here, quick. Sorry, come up here. Come up here. Um, Anaya, come up here. Couldn't see you back there with that cool hat. Sorry, Josh, I only have three. I have something to give you. Come up here, come on, come on. We don't have time. I'm behind. Let's go. Hustle, you're young. That's why I called you. If I had called on these old people, they'd have limped up here taking them all day. Okay, so I have something for you. There you go. I just, sorry. Shouldn't, I shouldn't have looked in that general area, should I? Oh, ouch. Um, hey, guys, I just wanted to give you a dollar just because, you know, you guys, your awesome prayers, and you're, it's great, so you can go back and sit down. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Well, you knew there was a wait, right? You, you can only take the front half. You go, no, not, not half, only the front half. So take, take the back half off and give me that, and you can take it back with you. Well, if you can't do that, then... Uh, yeah, you'd be here. I, we don't, one, we don't, I don't have scissors, and two, we don't have that kind of time. So here's what I did. And yes, I know this is probably illegal. Um, I may, here you go. You can, just, you can have that one. So show everybody the backside. Right? And you can just take that back with you. How do you feel about, wait, 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 come here. How do you feel about that? What's that? Who said that? Ripped off, right? Okay, so I'm going to take these back. And I'm actually going to give you this back. You can have that. You can have that. You can have that. Go sit down. Give him a hand. I'm also, no, take it. Give that to him. I'm also going to rip these up because that probably is illegal. So I want to show, like, if, if the government is watching right now, those are ripped up. Um, guys, what was, my, what was my point? Here's my point. Guys, it's, it, a dollar is only valuable if you have both halves. If you have the front and the back, right? It only, it's, it's only worth anything if you, if, if you know the whole, if you have the whole thing and you can take it with you. So to just sit there and go, guys, I, I, there are people in our midst, in our church, that, that many of them left years ago because I wasn't staunchly sovereignty of God enough for them, but that's the only part they want to talk about. Guys, honestly, that, that does, to me, that does nothing for your faith. There are other people that are like, yeah, I, I am, I'm sorry, but I just cannot believe that God would impose his will on somebody. And they're staunch, free will, 
choice, you know, people, that, guys, that, I don't know how that does anything for your faith. Because, man, that's a scary place to be too. Right? It's only valuable if you take both of them. So, the, the last point is, so not only is it effectual and just and righteous, it's also a promise you have to believe in. You have to believe in. Romans 10, and I, and I just wanted to throw it in there, even though we're not going to get there for a couple of weeks, because Romans 10 is true. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth the tongue con- confesses, and with the heart you believe. Guys, that's on you. That's on me. That is, as, that is as much your choice as anything. Do you believe it? Are you ready to believe? Maybe you've never believed it. It's today the day that you go, yeah, I am confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I am believing in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Praise the Lord. You are part of the family of God. But guys, if we're sitting here and we're going, no, I've, I've done that before, but I'm really struggling with this whole idea of trusting God enough to give him complete control. Yeah, like, exactly, welcome to the club. That's our wrestle. I am constantly taking back stuff from God because I could just do it better. We just gotta stop. But guys, if, if, if you... Hold on to both and put them together and go, eh, I don't know how it works, but I know that in this moment, what I need to cling to is, the, is that God is in control of this moment. And in this moment, what I need to cling to is I have got to make the right choice. Your faith walk will be infinitely better. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for... Um, that reality. Lord, I thank you that you are a God so awesome that we cannot get our minds around exactly how you can be in control of every moment, every soul, every life, every detail of all of human history, all at one time, and at the same time, um, make us completely responsible in the choices that we make. And yet, both of those things are true. Lord, may that just humble us into, into um, worshiping your awesomeness. Lord, as we, as we continue to worship you in communion and in, just, um, and in song, Lord, and then in the fellowship afterwards, I pray that you would use these moments to remind us that, that we are called to confess with our mouths that you are Lord and believe in our hearts. And we're called to, to invite other people into confessing with their mouths and believing in their hearts. We're called to invite people into things like baptism and and fellowship, and discipleship, and um, that's how your kingdom grows. That's that you have chosen to leave us res- like responsible for fulfilling your sovereign mission. Eh, I-, I don't get it, Lord, but we don't have to. We just have to be obedient to the parts we do get. So, Lord, I do pray for all of us. I pray that as we continue to worship you, um, we would just take great joy in knowing that when we live our lives and, as an act of worship, It is a pleasing aroma to you because you're the one who is in sovereign control of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.